Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's show is The Communists Made Us Do It, the Cold War cover for mass murder. We're listening to Responsible by Peter Brutzman from the 1968 album Machine Gun. In April 1955, representatives from 29 governments of Asian and African nations gathered in Bandung, Indonesia, to discuss peace and the role of the Third World in the Cold War, economic development, and decolonization. The participants represented a total population of 1.5 billion people, 54% of the world's population. The conference was organized by Indonesia, Burma, now Myanmar, Pakistan, Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, and India. President Sukarno of Indonesia offered the following to open this historic conference. The audio is slightly edited for time. This is the first intercontinental conference of colored peoples, so-called colored peoples, in the history of mankind. I am proud that my country is your host. It is a new departure in the history of the world that leaders of Asian and African peoples can meet together in their own countries to discuss and deliberate upon matters of common concern. In spite of diversity that exists among its participants, let this conference be a great success. Yes, there is diversity among us. Who denies it? Small and great nations are represented here with people professing almost every religion under the sun. Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Confucianism, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, Zoroastrianism, Shintoism, and others. Almost every political faith we encounter here, democracy, monarchism, theocracy, with innumerable variants, and practically every economic doctrine has its representative in this hall. Marhainism, socialism, capitalism, communism, in all their manifold variations and combinations. But again, what harm is in diversity? when there is unity in desire. This conference is not to oppose each other. It is a conference of brotherhood. What harm can come from a desire for self-rule and an end to neocolonialism? In response to this expression of unity, millions of people were murdered, continued to be murdered, by the forces of reactionary profiteers and white supremacy, encouraged and supported by the United States with the assistance of major U.S. corporations. What harm indeed. If your country espoused the principles of the Bandung Conference, you were labeled communist. And if your citizens were so-called colored peoples, then you'd be targeted for extermination and death squads would appear. This is the anti-communist playbook that our guest Vincent Bevins calls the Jakarta Method. As its great success, the nearly overnight erasure of the largest unarmed socialist party in the world prompted replication in several other countries in South America and Latin America. Vincent Bevins has been a journalist for 13 years and is the author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's anti-communist crusade and the mass murder program that shaped our world. 
published by Public Affairs Books. He joined me via Zoom from London. We'll begin with a description of the life of an investigative journalist, an endangered species, to be sure. And now, the communists made us do it, on Interchange, on WFHB. It was only sort of on accident that I found journalism as a way to combine my interests. I was in Venezuela in 2007, um, looking for some work to do there as I applied for grad school. Um, and I was trying to work in the, the public sector somehow or another, um, somehow work with policy and, and, and the, you know, the geopolitical situation in South America at the time. And just somebody offered me a job at the small English language newspaper that they run out of uh, Caracas. I think it's closed now. It's called the Daily Journal. And this is actually quite a common way for foreign correspondents to start. It's like people that happen to be in one country and then one of these small little uh, English language papers, you know, snatches them up, they kind of learn the trade there, realize they like it and then start writing for, for a larger publication. So it was kind of on accident that I, I was asked if I wanted to start covering Hugo Chavez in, in, in Caracas in 2007 for this tiny little paper. And then I turned around and started trying to send, sell stories to publications in the US with a little bit of success. Um, but enough that I, I put aside grad school and decided to keep doing this. It suited you. Yeah, I really liked it. I found I found that I was somehow not just learning about history, but but really like, uh, you know, close to it. Not really a part of history, but but right up there, you know, um, doing some work that I saw come out the next day and people would actually read. Whereas in the case of academia, I was looking at writing at one big paper that maybe uh, somebody might read nine years later and then that might not even lead to a job. So it was, it was, it was very exciting to be involved in. I always understood that English language representations of a place like Latin America mattered. And I was critical of a lot of those representations when I was just a guy that cared about politics and cared about Latin America and university. And then so when I could get involved in that and learn how it really worked and and, and write my own accounts, that was that was exciting. Uh, and so yeah, I've, I haven't really done anything else since then. Yeah, 2007, I guess. So 13 years, not, not my whole life. Do you imagine you're going to continue to, to do this for the rest of your life or for the foreseeable future anyway? Well, I think an interesting question is whether or not journalism is going to continue for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, right. as as like a human activity, like, is it going to go the way of like, you know, the horse drawn carriage or like the dodo bird? Like, I'm, I'm, I would like to write a second book. Hopefully that's going to happen. But the job that I had to be a sort of full time foreign correspondent for a major newspaper back in the United States does not exist in the same form that it did 13 years ago when I started. It's much worse. <laughs> There's much less resources. There's a lot of pressure to sort of like rely basically on NGOs and corporations and governments to just tell you what the story is rather than actually having the time and resources to get out there and find out what the story is. So luckily books still kind of exist as a, as a, as a business model. So hopefully that can sort of save me. But um, I want to keep doing this, but I think we're in a, in a sort of at a crossroads and not just in the US. Humanity is at crossroads when it comes to whether or not we actually can do well research journalism that gets the impact that we we hope that it does. It's interesting to think of it in those terms, especially since, you know, your book is a, an historical account with obviously present day 
uh, interviews or interviews you did while you were, were working on the kind of archival aspects of research. So you're doing um, research in this book that's not, it's journalistic, I suppose, but it's not as not as much of the same kind of thing you do on a day-to-day to try to post stories, right? Yeah, no, it's, well, in, in, the, in the one sense, it's very different. When, and I liked that a lot because it allowed me to like really make it my own. I got to step back for three years and really learn a lot about something and present it in a way which is slightly different than people understood it um, because of the things that I learned and the, and the time that I had to, you know, sort of jumble them all around in my brain. But in another sense, it was kind of the exact same um, technique. I really just did the same thing I would do with a, a short magazine article or a long newspaper article. You find out about something that is important that you realize not enough people know about. You read all the stuff that's already been written by people that are the real experts. You talk to those experts. You talk to the people that were there. And then you try to tell that story in a way that regular people can engage with. So it was really the, the same the same toolbox um, that I that I developed in journalism that I applied to doing this. You know, I'm, I didn't do it like a historian would. I did it very much like a journalist would. When you're a journalist, one of the best things to do is not have an ego about looking stupid. Being like a journalist in the sense meant going to all the academics that actually know this, that are the real experts that have really put together all the work that I really build upon and rely upon and being like, look, I don't really know what I'm doing. Can you please explain? Is this right? Is this wrong? Who should I talk to? What should I read? I had no qualms just going to the smarter people and being like, look, I want to do something that you'll be glad to see come out. Please help me. And I did a lot of that as, as well as tracking down survivors um, and slowly getting them to tell their own personal stories. This kind of, I guess, gave me a sense of our propaganda in history, because I didn't, I didn't grow up in the 50s and 60s, right? I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so history for me, if I know about Vietnam, it's because Vietnam was a real problem. And we, right. we, we, we knew about Vietnam. If we knew about Cuba, it was because Cuba was the most, and Cuba was at one point, the most horrifyingly terrible issue for the U.S. or for the world in general, uh, I suppose, Cuba being not the real problem, but the U.S. and the USSR being the real problem. But we know Vietnam, we know Cuba, I know Korea from a TV show. Right. Um, and so, but these are the large scope ideas that we have as as our sort of propaganda of this period. They're actually stories of, 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 lose, of losing. Right. Right. They're actually stories of loss where the U.S. doesn't succeed, where the U.S. gets its uh, hat handed to it, uh, where the U.S. has to back down. We have a president assassinated in this period as well. But the point of your books is to show the exact opposite in some sense, right, of the massive winning that went on for the U.S. and global capitalism. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's a really good rule. I mean, it's to be maybe sort of over schematic about it, you could kind of lay down the maxim that like, um, and I think this is something that my own experience in journalism, you know, helped me understand a little bit is that like, the things that enter the consciousness of the average US citizen, the things that become news or political tend to be things that are problems, right? The, the things that go according to plan, and according to the way that Americans sort of deeply believed that the world was supposed to go anyways, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, that is, you know, people just sort of all joining our big, you know, freedom loving camp, because it was much better. That was not news, right? Because it was supposed to happen. And it wasn't a problem for us, you know, like no news is uh, uh, good news, right? So Vietnam, a uh, really important counterexample to the case of Indonesia in 1965, um, because even though 
U.S. officials uh, in the early 60s all recognized that Indonesia was far more important than Vietnam, Vietnam became a problem for American politics. And I think this is a real contradiction that's hard to resolve at the heart of uh, a democracy which is also hegemonic or imperial in its uh, in its power around the world. Because for a U.S. citizen to make informed decisions about what its government is, what it does, um, how it acts in the world, it has to know. It has to know basically more or less what what it's doing, right? It has to be well informed. And when a government is involved in 175 to 180 co- countries at any given time, how are you supposed to like do your job, take care of your family, and also keep up on 180 uh, <laughs> conflicts or or covert operations or mini wars or coups uh, around the world. And so we end up hearing the, the things that sort of just certain things become political when they become, uh, when they land right in the, in, the, in, the, in the narrow ground between the Republican and Democratic parties. Things become national crises when Americans are dying. So Vietnam actually, you know, had um, young American men dying. So this was a huge issue and ultimately lost. That was a huge issue. Cuba, Cuba we failed to overthrow Fidel Castro as we successfully overthrew like a, every other um, left-leaning leader in Latin America, so that became like a, a problem. So this book is really about the the process of Americanization of, of planet Earth, and if you look at that process from you know a normal country, not from the the richest, most powerful country in history, uh, it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of losses for the United States in the 20th century. If you're an Indonesian or a Cambodian or a Chilean uh, or or from Mongolia or the Congo, it really looks like the United States was winning all the time, being quite brutal uh, to to make sure that those victories happened and then lying about it to itself. Um, so that's why I really, I really tried to, even though this is a book by an American for Americans, I tried to decenter America uh, as a country in the beginning, just to be like, no, 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 like, well, how do you, how does this all look if you take a really big step back? If we try to imagine you're like an alien or imagine that you're from, from, you're from nowhere. And I think there's a lot more winning than losing if you look at it that way. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Communists Made Us Do It, and our guest is Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade, and the Mass Murder Program That Shaped Our World. Recently, I've been seeing, and I think everybody's been seeing on their the social media, if you see uh, where a police officer uh, recently hogtied a woman, a black woman uh, in Colorado, I think, and took her to the station, 20-minute drive, something like that, hogtied in the back of his car. She was like wedged between the seat. And he was fired for it. But um, it was uh, it's one of those things where you begin to say to yourself, well, that person is, is, is bad. You know, that's a terrible act. He shouldn't have done something like that. Now, this person also has been hired and has gotten awards and continued as a, a police when he's probably been doing many other things. And, and so there's a way in which the system, you know, has these, these, these people involved in it that do things that, or don't really get exposed. When I was thinking about this book um, and how to sort of zoom, like you just use the word, I think, zoom out. And to me, this is kind of a zoom out moment where we can easily point to Suharto as this uh, general who, you know, uh, uh, took part in this coup. Uh, It's hard to, I guess there's no real indication of him being actually in charge of the coup, but rather sort of steps in and becomes the dictator he becomes. Right. Um, But there's, 
uh, State Department officials and CIA in, involved in this, right? So we can point to Suharto and say he's the bad guy, but there's a system behind it. You know, there are right. people behind it. There are actors behind it that say yes to it and and make it happen. And and really, one of the central issues of the book for me is that simple fact. It's just kind of hard to get out, get that out of your head, right? Where a guy like I think his name is what, Robert Martins, yeah, you know, handed over lists of communists for. Suharto uh, to basically murder to take over the the government or to get rid of the communist PKI. Um, so it's one of those things where you have to say, you know, if you're looking at history, that's a story that has to be as important as any other in some sense, right? Yeah. Um, it's a it's a hard thing to get your head around, but you also see it as reported because it was a 1991 story. I think that you you pointed to in the Washington Post, right? Um, that noted this issue and it's it's just reported right, right. and it's this guy just say well i yeah. probably have blood on my hands but hey maybe that's okay it's it's the robert martins of this world that confused me i guess yeah i think that and i think that article came out at a point where he could still justify to himself and to everybody else like oh no no you don't understand it was the cold war uh you know there's for some reason, the Cold War is an excuse for this really aggressive hand-waving as if the things that happened didn't count or the rules were different. And that just doesn't make any sense if you, again, zoom out and, and look at it. Um, I'm sure he believed that there was some kind of a horrible thing that was going to happen if they didn't murder the largest unarmed socialist party in human history. Um there's absolutely no evidence for that. And even if there were, like, how could you, I mean, how could you live with yourself if you didn't tell yourself that, right? Um, and this and this comes up uh, in another really great book that just came out by John Russo, one of the uh, the historians that really made a book like mine possible. He, he did a new book called Buried Histories about the way that um, no one talks about this anymore in Indonesia. And he talked about Unlike the way that it is portrayed in that the, the famous documentary film *Act of Killing*, where some people are bragging about what they did, most people never want to talk about it again. Um, most of the people that actually did the killings, the people that the order the killings, they they really shove it down. The issue of police brutality that, that you bring up is very interesting. I think I think it points to something that is um, often overlooked when it comes to this kind of stuff internationally, U.S. covert operations, coups, CIA, all that stuff. And that's the issue of impunity, right? So um, one section that's cut from the book, but I, I want to, you know, write somewhere, I'll talk about it now, is that uh, there's this kind of dichotomy in, in popular understanding of the CIA where on the one hand, the people believe, oh, the CIA is everywhere, they're behind everything, everything that's ever happened in, in a poor country, the CIA has done it, they're all powerful, um, and they pull off everything. Um the, the sort of conspiratorial view that really, you know, got a lot of uh, 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 steam in the 70s and 80s and still kind of exists as, as like, a, oh, that's that kind of CIA stuff. And then on the other side is the the narrative put forward in a very good book, um, Legacy of Ashes, which basically says, oh, the CIA screws up all the time and they don't help America that much because they're screwing things up all the time. But I think that that, that dichotomy is a false one. And and the way that it should be resolved is, the, is understanding what it means when you are truly in a position of impunity. And when you are the covert operations team for the most powerful country in history, you're allowed to fail over and over and over and then still eventually get what you want, kind of. Um, and I think that's very analogous to the way that police... I think the way that the CIA operated in the Global South in the 20th century is very analogous to the way that police in the United States operate in black and brown ghettos, right? So 
they don't really need to like fix things. They just need to smash them back into or in line. If they make things worse, eh, it's that, that you know, that's not really what the police are there to do. They're, they're there to sort of maintain a sort of base level order, keep them out of the, the other neighborhoods, maintain the order. Um, if they sort of cross a bunch of lines and screw things up, well, they're, the, they're not going to get in trouble. And so they can be bad. They can be good. They can be bad. They can be bad. And then eventually get what kind of some kind of an outcome that they want, bring down the gang or, or, or change the change the gang that's in charge of the, the the ghetto, for example. And then in in places like Guatemala or Indonesia, the CIA failed a bunch of times before ultimately succeeding. Right. And in the case of uh, Guatemala is a really uh, a striking one, because I think I point this out in the book. President Jacobo Arbenz found out the CIA's plan like. The whole thing, like A, B, C, D, E, he knew he like got exactly what the CIA was going to do to try to overthrow him, published this and the CIA just kept going, you know, like it didn't even matter. Like, you know, if you're the CIA, who, what are you going to do? Call the ref, you know, what, that's it. You know, you can't, you know, get the teacher, uh, you know, to, 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 to get them in trouble. So the systems within our sort of planetary order in the, in the global system, which benefit from basic, uh, almost uh, complete impunity uh, are really where you end up finding the worst things happen. Uh, because as you point out, it, it, you know, Su- you know, Suharto was obviously responsible for all of this. Would he have done it without the United States making it very clear that they, that number one, they wanted it to happen. Number two, they would do everything in their power to play defense for him afterwards. No, I don't think so. I think it's pretty clear that he would not. So um, he had to be bloodthirsty and, and, uh, uh, horrible and morally compromised to oversee this this intentional execution of approximately one million innocent civilians, but standing under the umbrella of an organization which enjoys true global impunity was fundamental to allowing that kind of evil to take place. It's time for a break. This is Indonesian singer Lili Suryani with Gang Kalinsi, or Rabbit Alley, a critical though metaphorical view of the actions of Indonesia's founding father, Sukarno, for ending a period of liberal democracy and replacing it with a totalitarian system of censorship and economic exploitation prior to the coup that would oust him. Stay with us for more with Vincent Bevins on the Jakarta Method when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is The Communists Made Us Do It, 
and our guest is journalist Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method. In this segment, we discover the third world as descriptive of a world to improve upon those of the first and second worlds, not a denigrating and racist designation of inferiority. As we jumped into the middle, in a sense, or jumped into the end even, or jumped into the realities of the world as it is, uh, and it's, as I assume it continues to be, it's one of those things, again, that, sh- that kind of stops you in your tracks. And I know um, one wants things to kind of actually push one into action. But when, when the wrongs are global as these are, right, you, you kind of stop and you say to yourself, what, what in the world, you know, the famous communist question, right, what, what is to be done? Right. Um, interestingly uplifting to me is that I learn about uh, more about the Bandung conference than right. I was again I knew what it was and I knew what what it was for and I knew how it w- how it went down in a sense but it wasn't really it was really this period that I thought to myself I cannot believe how thoroughly or targeted these countries were at that point. So if you, in, in effect, if you were at the Bandung conference, you were like targeted to be destroyed. Yeah. By the beginning of the Eisenhower administration, um, neutrality was, was guilt. You were an enemy until you proved you were an ally, um, which was not the way that things worked at the very, very beginning of the Cold War under Truman. There was this brief moment like, well, maybe it's okay if... Um, if countries want to be non-aligned, if they want to try desperately to maintain good relations with the two superpowers, considering that they very much need as much money as they can get. Um, but that all changed by the 50s. And, and yeah, for for us, because of the Dulles brothers, largely, uh, John Foster and Allen, who are, uh, you know, head of state and CIA, uh, real Cold Warriors, real um, American fanatics in a way, uh, neutrality was guilt um, um, by the middle of the by the middle of the 50s. Let's talk a little bit about that. Again, the book's focus is anti-communism. Obviously, it's the the driving force in a lot of this or the driving cover, let's say. I don't know uh, how much communism means to a lot of people who are end up being destroyed by it or destroyed for it. I mean, right. um, but it's the cover, the, it's undercover of anti-communism that all this takes place. And when you mention Dulles, the Dulles brothers, or when you talk about anti-communism um, and the sort of like rabid sense that a, a lot of these co-warriors were, you know, projecting out into the world, what form of reality is there that this is a true, like, um, uh, almost uh, religious response? You know, if you're not capitalist or you're communist, so you're, you're, you're for the, you're either for God or you're for the devil. Yeah. And is that a reality or are the Dulleses simply men of power who just want to rule the world? I always, I know it's not so simple, but with the Dulles brothers, it seems fairly simple. They're awful people, but I don't know what that means. They're as awful as Suharto easily to me, but what does that mean? (laughs) I think that's also perhaps maybe a false dichotomy, right? I think those can be complementary, right? So just to really briefly outline, the book is, as you say, about anti-communist murder, but it's also about the Third World Movement and what happened to it. After World War II ended, the the, the, the world was divided in three largely, and, and the, the term Third World has been degraded in the decades since by its racist, uh, the racists <laughs> speaking the English language, uh, using it in a derogatory form. But at the time, it was an entirely optimistic and forward-looking project. The idea was, okay, there's the First World, those are the rich countries that are all imperialist. All of them have either conquered overseas territories or conquered their own, um, and they run the world. We know that. Then there's the second world, which is the Soviet Union. 
we, the peoples of the formerly colonized world, are going to form a new block which stands up on our own feet and takes our rightful place alongside our former enslavers, basically, right? And um, in at this exact same moment in 1945, um, the, the real power within the first world shifts from Western Europe to the United States in, in a very final kind of way. It's a, it's a really radical, you know, the United States gets very powerful very quickly, um, basically because Europe destroys itself in two world wars. And um, the way that the United States ends up treating the, the third world is very similar to the way that the first world, Western Europe, treated the third world in the age of formal colonization. They sort of arrived onto the world scene, the United States, that is, um, looking at this system, which has already been created, where a, a, a group of small, a small group of wealthy white countries exploits, you know, sucks natural resources out of um, a large group of poorer countries. And they kind of you know, there's maybe a fork in the road there. Uh, can, should we sort of be more American in the sense of our revolutionary ideals? Or do we fall into this kind of a neo-colonial position, extract in a similar way, but, you know, maintaining control in slightly different form? And I think it's pretty clear that the Cold War is a continuation of colonialism by other means. And the question of why the U.S. did that. There's endless debates as it, okay, is it really that this is a, a you know deeply ideological country, a sort of a naive, fanatically Christian country that wants the whole world to be like itself? They really are afraid of communism everywhere because they see it as a threat to their way of life. They see it as fundamentally evil. They see their job as to make the world safe for freedom or whatever. Or is it that the United States is extremely porous to the interests of big corporations and that big corporations can lean very hard very effectively on the U.S. government to get what they want. And when U.S. corporations have an investment in Guatemala or Indonesia or Chile, uh, they can make sure that they get this apparatus up and running to protect their investments. And I think it's both things, right? I think a really good way to get yourself um, targeted by the U.S. foreign policy apparatus in the 20th century is if both conditions are in place, right? If, if, Geopolitically, somebody in Washington is scared about your stance vis-a-vis the the United States or vis-a-vis the the socialist world. And there's a couple of very powerful lobbyists saying, hey, our fruit company is going to get screwed if this guy takes over. So I think think, um, it really has to be both. To, to, To see the really aggressive kind of attempts to influence and reshape the world in the 20th century, it, it really had to be both things, I think. Uh, so the question, of, and again, I think you start out this way, right? So we understand the U.S. is a settler colonial nation uh, that that uh, succeeded mostly via uh, enslaving people that that worked to uh, worked in fields and created a particular economic system. Um, I don't think it's as far stretched to say that it didn't take any effort or imagination to continue the Cold War, you know, colonial and neo-colonial perspective, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, this is. Um um, and this is something that is like kind of, again, it's you're seen as really radical to bring this up within the United States. But if you were an Indonesian um, looking out onto the world, you know, looking north and east and west and looking at all the, the, the constellation of countries around you in the 50s and 60s, in this brief period where your nation has real independence for the first time in hundreds of years, um, I met a lot of these people over the last three years. I got to know very well the way that they they view these things. And they viewed the, the United States as obviously self-evidently a racist country, right? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, like that that's a colony like we were, except instead of leaving, the white people killed all the natives and stayed. It was a very matter-of-fact understanding of the world that they had like, well, yeah, you know, so that country 
certainly is inherently racist. Everybody that I know there that has ever gone there is, is has been treated with extreme racism. Um, they are the cousins of the Western Europeans that kept us down for hundreds of years. I hope they don't do the same thing, but it seems like they really might. <laughs> All the ingredients are there for them to treat us in the same racist and, and, and imperialist way that Western Europeans had. And all that added up, and, I, and the people that, that were suspicious were right. I mean, despite the fact that people like Ho Chi Minh even, and much more moderate figures like Sukarno, tried really hard not to pick a fight with the United States, right? Um, in the early years of the Cold War, leaders of the Third World often went to almost ridiculous lengths to to kiss the ring of the United States and be like, hey, 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 we, we stand for the same things as you. We want independence just like you got independence from the British. Isn't this great? you know, revolutionary ideals of independence are, are sweeping the globe. Hey, aren't, aren't we on the same side? And, and it didn't work. The, the people that suspected that the rapacious uh, or militaristic nature of the United States would win out turned out to be tragically correct. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Communists Made Us Do It. And our guest is Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's anti-communist crusade and the mass murder program that shaped our work. Generally, the U.S. has worked overtime to be against the spirit of Bandung, to be yeah. against, to be against uh, so-called colored peoples in the world. For the most part, I think that Sukarno uses that particular phrase in his you know, opening speech or, uh, or address of the. Uh, to the Bandung Conference, right? The coming together of the so-called peoples of the colored world or something like that. So right. what, how, how, did, how is it that Sukarno becomes the kind of figurehead of this movement? Yeah, so um, he, he really does. That's, that's the right way to put it. Um, uh, it. It is at Bandung in 1955, Bandung being a city in, uh, in Indonesia, that Sukarno really becomes one of the, 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 like, the founding leaders of the third world movement. And he organizes this conference with with um, like-minded anti-colonial leaders of the global south from India and, and, and all over Asia and Africa to organize this, as he call, calls it, the first meeting of in the history of mankind uh, of, of colored peoples without the oversight of any white people, right? The first time uh, there's truly a South-South alliance without anybody else involved. And I think about a half, half of the world's population was represented at Bandung, and this was a huge deal. I think I put this in the book, but I mean, uh, I spoke to a lot of people that still can recite word for word his opening speech at Bandung. Like, it was this moment of intense optimism that, you know, the scales had fallen, you know, the path is open, the future is ours, we have arisen, we are free, um, the, 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 the black and brown peoples of, of, of the planet uh, are now going to for forge our own destiny, right? And it led to this huge flowering of organizations across the Muslim world, across Africa and, and Asia, um, these kind of the magazines to tell global stories without the assistance of people like me, like without without relying on white Americans to, to tell their stories for them. Feminist Muslim magazines, where they talk about what it means to be sort of a modern woman and also Muslim and also a socialist and also an anti-imperialist activist. And... All of this, despite the really obvious, as I said, very almost, you know, obsequious gestures towards the United States, this was met with racist condescension in the United States. And by the end of 1955, um, not only because of the Bandung Conference, also because the uh, moderate and very popular Indonesian Communist Party was doing better and better in elections, the CIA 
flipped on the switch and and set its its various plans in motion to try to crush this particular type of Indonesian nation. And to crush this one would be to crush the spirit of them all in some sense. So exactly. the um, I guess. Uh, if you can, and you just kind of did it, right, when you say this uh, moderate communist party in Indonesia, can you, I guess, explain as best you can what communism meant in this particular region or how it would be uh, compared to Soviet or Chinese communism or anything like that, but also the ways in which it just is one kind of thing to the U.S. or just one kind of thing to right. a right-wing understanding of the world. Right. So the Indonesian communists were not, quote-unquote, communists in the sense that a lot of Americans would think of it, it now, right? So the Indonesian Communist Party was the oldest in Asia. It was founded in 1914, before the Re- Russian Revolution ever happened. And this is back when sort of Marxism, uh, uh, remember this is like the days of the Second International, when the idea is there's going to be a, the gradual, you know, capitalism will gradually lead to socialism without some kind of a political or revolutionary rupture. And this was always sort of the approach of the Indonesian Communist Party, especially as they got in the 50s and 60s. They believed that it was their job to get as many people in the party as possible, um, popularize uh, the ideals, um, go and do outreach to normal people, and help what they considered a bourgeois national government under Sukarno develop capitalism outside of the sphere of imperialism. And then way, way, way later, they, they, they said maybe in the 21st century, have some kind of transition to socialism. They absolutely had no plans to storm the palace and uh, uh, collectivize everything, right? They were doing very, very well in elections. Um, uh, Richard Nixon uh, said as vice president, um, something like democracy is clearly not the right form of government for Indonesia because the communists can't be beat. Uh, and a CIA... Um, intelligence from that period is quite clear about why they can't be beat. It's because they're actually going out and doing the work to sort of improve people's lives and to uh, convert people over to their cause, right? They were one of the least corrupt parties, one of the most active. By all accounts, they were just kind of good at doing politics. They were very disciplined and organized. Of course, this didn't matter back in Washington, right? There was one ambassador that I that I spend a bit of time explaining in the book, Howard Jones, that even though he saw himself as an anti-communist, he saw it as his role to do whatever he could to crush communism in Indonesia. He was endlessly frustrated that people back in Washington that had never been in Indonesia didn't understand the local particularities of the world's fourth largest country by population, a, a country with such a rich history and such a wide variety of cultures that did not that did not feel the need to copy anybody else. They were very very confident in their ability in their in their abilities to do things their own way. Um, but the U.S. didn't see it that way. There, they just saw it another you know you know black and white, and they they were black. And and Howard Jones himself does does attribute this to the deep roots of the United States, to a fanatical conquest of the United States by Puritans. I mean, he he even in his memoirs kind of morosely comes to that conclusion. It's like, well, maybe it's just that's who we are. Maybe we're we're hardwired to be moralistic and to to miss subtlety when it comes to to other peoples. Uh, absolutely, as you say, there was no recognition of, of, of how they were different, and, and the attempts went on to crush them. So in 55, um, starting in 55, the U.S. government funneled loads of money into a conservative Muslim party, hoping that that would mean that they beat the communists in elections. It did not. That failed. Um, in 1958, there was an actual bombing campaign with American pilots dropping death onto uh, islands throughout the archipelago nation, that failed too, because they were discovered. And also the Indonesian military 
turned out to be pretty good at, at, at uh, actually standing up for this young country. And it was only seven years later with a very different and much more catastrophic method that they ended up um, crushing the world's largest unarmed communist party. It's time for another break. Once again, here's Indonesian singer Lili Suriani with Genjer Genjer from the 1965 album Iatetab Diatas, He Stays Up. Genjer is an important vegetable in Indonesia where the central flower stalk and the leaves are used in soups, curries, salads, and stir-fries. A folk song originating in East Java, it has proved useful to the Japanese occupying military government in the 1940s, to the Indonesian Communist Party, PKI, in the 1950s, and finally, it was implicated in the fictional rationale for the Suharto response to the September 30th movement, alleged to have murdered six army generals. It was claimed that during the murders, the Gurwani, the PKI women's movement, sang this song and danced and took part in orgies as they mutilated bodies. Historians agree. That's ridiculous, but sadly, effective propaganda. Stay with us for more on the Jakarta Method when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method, published by Public Affairs Books. In our final segment, we'll discuss the mysterious September 30th movement, the CIA involvement, and the method used by Suharto that would become a template across the globe for destroying left opposition to murderous right-wing puppet governments. of the situation now become those that are spread across the globe. Um, right. You know, and the, the very mythology is spread across the globe. The idea of, of telling false stories and then acting on them as if they were true is spread across the globe. You know, these, these provocateur actions that you respond to uh, become a kind of norm across the globe as well. So what happens, you know, what, I guess, as briefly, I suppose, go through the, I guess, the September 30, um, um, whatever it was, uh, yeah, movement. Yeah, September 30th uh, movement, yeah. In 1964, for a couple of reasons, the United States ultimately decides it's really, really tired of putting up with Sukarno. Um, Maybe the main reason is that JFK died and LBJ didn't have the political capital or or willingness to to figure out what's really going on over there. He kind of said, well, sort that out. We can't put up with this guy anymore. 
kind of tell about the, that relationship, Sukarno's relationship to power in the West, I suppose. Yeah, so Sukarno is kind of the founding father of Indonesia, and he's very charismatic, and he's very he's almost like kind of a prophet of Indonesian identity. Um, he was not always the best at running sort of day-to-day economic uh, policy. And from the perspective of the Indonesian women's movement, one of the largest feminist organizations in the world at the time, and they were, they were affiliated with the Communist Party, he had... Uh, real personal failings. He ended up uh, um, adopting the practice of polygamy, which still had some truck amongst the Muslim community. When he visited the United States in the 50s, two things really uh, apparently pissed off the leadership in Washington. One is that he um, wanted to make sure he could sleep with sex workers in in Washington, D.C. And two, he insisted on his right to go visit the Soviet Union right afterwards. And for Sukarno, this was obvious. You know, he He's the leader of the Third World Movement. He's allowed to, vi- to visit whoever he wants. Uh, and, and on the first issue, the, the issue of sexual morality, one wonders if it would have been seen as so disgusting by the upper crust in Washington, D.C. if a white man from Europe wanted to sleep with a white prostitute from the United States. But um, who knows? Uh, that's speculative. People were killed for this kind of thing in, in, in the 50s in the United States. The CIA tries to kill him here. Uh, he defeats the CIA invasion here. And then from 58 to 64... Especially under Kennedy, he's seen as somebody that like uh, he's kind of a problematic figure out in Southeast Asia. But it's better to be friends with him than than not. Uh, and this falls apart after JFK dies. And and so in 1964, after Howard Jones is shipped out, and they bring in a uh, ambassador who everybody knows is sort of a specialist in coups. He's kind of a bruiser. He's the ringer. Uh, he's not a diplomat, right? He he he's there to oversee regime regime change. CIA and MI6 begin covertly agitating to create a clash between the very popular but unarmed Communist Party and the very well-armed U.S.-backed military, understanding very well that when an armed group um, fights an unarmed group, the armed group wins. And we still don't know exactly what they were doing um, because the CIA has not released these files. I tried to get them. I asked them. They didn't give them to me. But what we do know is that this clash does happen. It happens in a sort of a mysterious way. Um, on October 1st, 1965, there's a small uh, uprising where some generals are taken, uh, are kidnapped and then die. And then immediately, with the help of the United States, a general from named Suharto tells a story uh, with uh, that is an intentional lie to blame the entire thing on the Communist Party uh, and, and attributes to them cruelty and and attributes to them the desire to carry out mass murder. And these lies spread by Washington, the Indonesian military, and much Western press are used to justify the intentional murder of approximately one million people. And another million people stayed in concentration camps purely for their, for their political beliefs, as Suharto became one of the most important allies of Washington, a, a fully paid up member of the free world, uh, the kind of guy that could get away with invading another country, killing a third of, of, of its population and robbing all of his own people of their money without anybody in the United States really giving him any trouble because he was such an important ally um, against communism, wherever that, whatever that meant in that, in that part of the world at the time. This event has been largely forgotten in the English-speaking world. But at the time, it really mattered. It mattered on the left and the right. People around the globe were really paying attention. You know, this was the leader of the Third World Movement. This was Sukarno. This was the the PKI, one of the most dynamic and interesting unarmed democratic socialist movements in human history. Uh, In the blink of an eye, everyone's dead and it's over. Indonesia becomes a compliant, almost invisible partner of the United States in this global order, this world that has been created by all those victories we spoke about at the beginning. On the left... Uh, around the world, people took the very grim lesson that, oh, no, we can't be unarmed. We have to be radical and endlessly self-defensive or else we might be killed, too. And this caused a lot of left-wing groups around the world to 
become more violent and or extreme. Um, and on the right, movements uh, that were allied with the United States or could be allied with the United States or were just radical anti-communists themselves, and specifically in Latin America, this was most important. They saw this as something that they could be copied. This was, They saw it as an inspiration. They saw, oh, not only does it work to round people up and disappear them in the middle of the night, not only does that effectively quell all opposition to a budding authoritarian capitalist regime, the most powerful country in history will help you do it and then help you cover it up afterwards. And so in Brazil and in Chile in the early 70s, you know, this is the, the titular Jakarta method, they start using the word Jakarta to signify the, 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 what they are going to do to their own leftists, which is just to kill them. And, 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 and that does eventually happen. Um, and and the, everyone that thought that they could get away with it with the help of the United States was proven right. One of the things that struck me, among many, of course, but is just the I, just how much the U.S. was involved in a very direct way on our own soil, right? So you talk about the um, training at Fort Leavenworth of Indonesian military. This is a part of that shift that I that I really briefly touched on after that. CIA bombing campaign doesn't work, right? So in 1958, um, this you know uh, uh, Americans are dropping explosives on Indonesia, hoping to assist some rebels in breaking up the country. And when that doesn't work, the CIA shift tactics. And this is a very uh, important shift. Um, uh, rather than taking on the Indonesian military directly, they invite them to Kansas for to be well-fed and well-paid and, and, and trained in, in the ways of American ideology, anti-communist uh, ideology, but also where they would learn sometimes over there in the, in the messy third world, the military needs to run the whole country and sort of whip it into shape so it can jump from backwards to modern, right? The amount of uh, soldiers, uh, officers being trained in Kansas shot up to thousands from 1958 to 1965. And there they were, you know, rubbing shoulders with a lot of other uh, uh, generals from around the world. The dictator of, of Brazil that took over in 1964 had trained there. Um, you know, the United States feels strange to say, but I think quite intelligently realized that it made a lot of sense to be very good friends with as many militaries as they could around the world and and to create deep ties, try to establish, in the case of Indonesia, they tried to establish ideological hegemony in the armed forces because this was a, a country that was officially across the board and including in the military committed to left-leaning anti-colonial ideals, right? Um in 1955 or whatever, no one in Indonesia was an anti-communist. That included the Muslims, that included the military. It just didn't make sense. They didn't have the same history as the United States. And they did eventually, through this training, this this interchange to Kansas, um, establish ideological hegemony in the, in the Indonesian military. And it re- remains to this day an intensely anti-communist organization. Right. So much that right. I might not be able to go back to Indonesia myself. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Communists Made Us Do It, and our guest is Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade, and the Mass Murder Program That Shaped Our World. This, to me, is really key, right? The the ability to um, indoctrinate a particular, in, in, in particular, military people, but the way it's it's an open act, right? It's a, a fact of how um, the U.S. does these things. But the my question, I guess, at the time was, Sukarno is not aware of this happening? The, oh, no, he knows. Indoctr- so he knows that his military is being indoctrinated into anti-communism. Yeah, well, um, I don't know if he, he would... He, he knows that... that, that, that 
the condition of being a post-colonial state in Southeast Asia at the time was that you had to take aid from the United States and there was going to be conditions. And he knew that the military was getting trained. He knew that the military was much more conservative than the communists. And he knew that he was sort of, he had to be very deft in playing these these elements against each other um, to to avoid conflict. So he knew that there was, you know, the, the military on the right and the, the, the communists on the left, he knew that they were important power centers. What he did not know was that something like that could happen. I'm not sure that it's entirely clear how how deep this kind of propaganda runs, right? How deep this sort of mythology of anti-communism affects these particular regions at this point, and the U.S., to be honest with you. And the U.S. is like deeply anti-communist. Right. Um, in in the most, again, I don't know how things could be considered rational, to be honest with you, but, but a, a, these are clear... Um, mythologies in these countries, right? The the stories that are made up about these things, or the stories that are actually just told in reverse. So the the right kills a bunch of people and then makes up a story about the left killing it, or the communists killing these people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that happens and how it kind of like the, even Jakarta is coming isn't a myth; it's a reality. But it's almost if as if you know some communist is going to kill you, not some right wing death squad. Yeah, that's really interesting in, in Chile. <laughs> It's absurd, which is why I, I you know, I, I struggle to even to confront it without chuckling a bit. But it's not funny, of course. So the Chilean right threatened the the left with Jakarta, right? They said, oh, we're going to do that just like the Indonesians did that to them. But again, they found the same justification. They're like, oh, well, no, we have to do that because they're going to do that to us. And they had there was these absurd myths that were spread after Pinochet took over. They spread these absurd myths that like, oh, no, no, we had uncovered these plans where uh, the, the left was going to kill everyone or they had this secret. Uh, basically, there were sleeper cells everywhere that were going to be activated when people turned their cigarette box upside down in their front shirt pocket. Uh, and that was going to be the, the signal, uh, the bat signal for the, all the hidden communists to come out and sort of raid your home and kill your family. Lying like this, you know, uh, it's not a nice lesson, uh, but it does, you know, it works. If you're in power, you control the means of communication. Lying about your enemies is something that, that now they're on the defensive. Now they have to disprove it. And I think this is something that we see in in politics globally now is that if you can just muddy the waters and just throw lies out there, it's the other side that has to find the organizational and institutional force to counter them, right? If you're in power, it's very easy to smear the people that are not in power. I mean, this was, you know, the basis of of fascism in, in, in Europe in the 30s and 40s is the elite pretending that there's a horrible threat to them so that they can crush what they want to crush anyways. And um, this tactic of basically saying that the other side wants to do what you really want to do as a justification to do what you really want to do I think it's reproduced all throughout um, the 20th century. I mean, I think still exists, right? It works, right? You, if you, if, if, if you accuse your enemy of the most horrible thing that you can imagine, then how can anyone blame you for doing the same thing? Right, in defense, right? So yes, we, I mean, we unfortunately we are confronting it in the U.S. Obviously, in this current moment as well with, I guess, accusations of violence from the left, which is really occurring on the right. In 1989. Uh, the Soviet Union fell apart, the Cold War ended. But all of the tools, all of the strategies, all of the methods that had been built up on the other side of the, the aisle over the, the, the 20th century, um, that toolbox remained in the hands of the exact same institutions that were active in the 20th, in 20th century, right? The US, the US didn't fall apart. The people that had built up this playbook didn't go away. And if these things work, why would they stop doing them just because the enemies changed? 
for me, the one thing that still stuck with uh, me throughout is, and you keep using the term elites, right? So one thing that's hard to understand, I think, is how we we parse that term and think about elites and who is, uh, and, and we do this obviously, who is a good or bad elite or, you know, who has money and who doesn't and why it's good to have money and why it's not and power, et cetera. So all these things become kind of confusing if you think these, these giant um, militaries uh, and these death squads are doing these things at the um, in the service of elites, right. in the service of power that's concentrated in basically ownership and property, right? Basic. I mean, these are these are clearly class issues. There are people that own things in the world and lots of things that want to continue to have those things, and this is no different, right? These are. I mean, this is what's happening. Well, uh, yeah. What, what, one thing that I always say when discussing repression and dictatorship in, in the U.S. is that every dictatorship has a constituency, right? We often have this idea of like one man, like literally enslaving the entire country. That's not how it works, right? The military in Indonesia or in Brazil is keeping someone happy. You cannot run by force alone. You, you, are, you have somebody for whom you took power and somebody that is uh, assenting to your power. And it might be a small group um, with a lot of economic power but but uh uh these things these dictatorships often came about in order to preserve a social order rather than to create a new one um and i think that's that actually the rule in, in the case of latin american dictatorships in, in indonesia that the, the the task of of the military was not to steal the country away and make it in their own image it was to stop popular movements from changing it really is a method it isn't it isn't like a freak thing that happened one time it was uh it was over 20 countries at least where a u.s allied um uh, nation in the cold war intentionally killed people for being left-wing or being accused of left-wing and and this as i as i put in the subtitle of the book i think really shaped shaped the world that we live in today well there's no doubt about it and i do want i do it's hard to say this enough right you do want to be able to stress when we say U.S. allied, we also mean U.S. funded generally, U.S. Uh, assistance in terms of, um, again, the CIA or some other f- function or, or via some other program. Uh, it's, it's the U.S. that is at least by proxy. I don't know how to say – like if I just come out and say the U.S. is responsible for murdering so many millions of people. I think I think they share responsibility. I, think, I mean in a lot of cases, they're, they're complicit or worse. They're the ones that are actively encouraging the murder. I think, I think responsibility is, is, is not the wrong word. That's our show. We'll close with Family Business by Dengue Fever an American band from Los Angeles who combined Cambodian rock and pop music of the 1960s and 70s with psychedelic rock, with lyrics often sung in Khmer. Thanks to Vincent Bevins for joining us. Again, his book is The Jakarta Method. It seems to me to be a must-read and a corrective to the right-wing propaganda that falsely blames its victims for the very acts the right wants to, intends to, and does perpetrate. And remember... Dictators have constituencies. I'm Doug Storm, and I produce this program. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. She's tossed in bed and she's up all night.